Father, we look back and see a cross on the wall behind me and we're reminded, God, of um, the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel, all that we've um, sung and preached and celebrated over the last two or three weeks. Father, we sing about the glory yet to come and the end. And Father, when we see Christ and we're transformed into his likeness, Lord, and uh, our salvation is complete. Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes to, to the here and now in our life today, that you'll, um, Father, show us what it means to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, uh, step by step, day by day, fight by fight, Lord, conquered sin by conquered sin. Um, Lord, show us what that means today. Um, we thank you that Jesus is our, our champion. He's our victor. Lord, all the praise and glory goes to you today. Um, so continue to show us, Lord, today, I pray, what, what a difference the cross makes, um, specifically, Lord, in, in how we're called to live every day. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, the Lord does indeed have a word for us today. Um, and he has hammered that truth home to me this week in three different ways, all right? Um, some of us were at a, a conference this week. Uh, it was really a great experience to be at together for the gospel in Louisville, Kentucky again. Um, and, and while we were there, um, John Piper preached one, one afternoon, um, one evening, and it was kind of a, a recognition of his 50 years of ministry. There was a really cool interview that went on after that. Um, but he preached on holiness, and he, he preached out of First Peter. Um, the passage that you studied in Sunday school today. I'll speak more about that in just a minute. So, so Piper brought this message on holiness and on the fact that Jesus has bought and paid for our holiness. Then that message that we get in Sunday school this morning from First Peter just reinforces this, this whole idea of our call to holiness. All right. And then the text that we're at in Ephesians is that message as well. So I have that in the back of my mind here for the last couple of weeks. We're coming to this part of Ephesians chapter 4, and Piper preaches that message, and we talk about it in Sunday school from First Peter, and then we here are in this text. And for the last three Sundays, we've looked at the cross and what it means, the redeeming substitutionary work of Christ. We've looked at what that means for us, past, future, and present. And that cross has been our focus and so we're here in the middle of Ephesians, just like we are here in the middle of our life. We've sung about that this morning. We look with spiritual eyes back on our salvation as those who have trusted in Christ. And we look back, and we look back at that past event where by faith we trusted in Christ and God by grace declared us righteous in his eyes. He looked at us no longer as sinners, but as those who have trusted in the righteous work of Christ. And he sees us through those gracious, redemptive eyes. And he sees Jesus in us. And so we look back on that event. And that's, that's the past. That's who we are. That's our justification. We have trusted in the substitutionary, sin-bearing, redeeming work of Jesus. But we do that with a view for the future where our salvation will be complete, we saw that in the book of Revelation, right? We will see him return, and in his glory, we will be transformed. There will be a resurrection like his for us physically, our resurrection body. That's coming. 
And we're in the middle of that. All right? We're in the middle of that spiritual journey. And that middle is called living. That's life. Right? That's where we are. We're, we're just in the middle of life. And this passage and what we're going to see in the rest of Ephesians makes it really crystal clear what God expects of us. But listen, not just what he expects of us, but what he, by grace, through Christ, provides for us. All right? So that's what we're going to see. Go back and look at Ephesians chapter 1 to kind of set the context. We've been out of Ephesians for a couple of three weeks. Let's just remind ourselves of of where we're at in the book of Ephesians. Um, It begins with this glorious picture of God's eternal purposes for us in Christ. Starting in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Paul says that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, by the way, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the Greek, okay? There's no punctuation marks. It's just run on, run on, run on, run on. It just keeps going. All right? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Then in verse 11, Paul says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The ultimate end of our salvation is that we will stand before God holy and blameless in his holy, pure eyesight. That's, that's what we're called to. That's the ultimate end of our salvation. And we were chosen in him to be radically different from the world around us, saved for that purpose. And as we live that way, we bear a family name. In love, he predestined us for adoption. We bear the name of our Lord. All right? We bear the name of Jesus. And that family characteristic in that name is a characteristic of holiness. That's, that's what we're called to. And yeah, we still struggle with sin, but it says we have forgiveness for our sins. His redemption has been full and has conquered, and it's serving its purpose. And so our rebellion and our self-centered pursuits have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Praise God for that. Praise God for that grace. In him we have redemption. And we have the sealing, the promise, the Holy Spirit. And that's the, that's the gift that he's given us here. Holy and blameless, listen to this church, is who we will be in eternity. And holy is who we are called to be now while we're on our way to eternity. And this holiness, quite frankly, real simply to me, is just a different way of living. All right? It's a clean break with what life is outside of Christ as opposed to what it is in Christ. We saw that in the baptisms last week, right? All right? 
That's the picture that we have. Buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. Jesus died to present us holy and blameless and for us to live holy and blameless lives. That's, that's the message that Peter has for us. That's what we heard preached this past week. Turn to First Peter for just a second. I'm not going to redo your Sunday school lesson, and I'm not going to re-preach Piper's message. But I do think we need to see this as we get into this section of Scripture. In First Peter chapter 1, holiness is front and center as Peter gives this message. Look down in verse, uh, starting verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now look at this next passage. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He says later on down in chapter 2 that he himself bore in his body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus' blood has not ever been, nor will it ever be wasted. Amen? It was not spilled in vain. And Jesus didn't die and shed his blood to give us a suggestion. He died and shed his blood to make us holy. And he purchased our freedom and redemption from sin into holiness. That's what we're called to. That's what he bought and paid for. And that's what we see before us in this passage. And, and I'll, just, I'll just quote a couple of things that, that John Piper said that just struck me. He said, we must not miss the connection between the sin-bearing work of Christ and the sin-killing work of the Christian. Between Christ canceling sin and the Christian conquering sin. And the New Testament, he said, shows us the direct connection between the horrors of Christ's suffering and the holiness of the Christian. He went so far to say that if we are not making progress in holiness, we can have zero confidence in our profession of faith. It's a big deal. Jesus bought and paid for it. And we're to be pursuing it. And Paul shows us how to do that. So I've just covered the first point of the message, okay? All right? If you're looking at your outline, the imperative walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, I just covered that. That's the calling to which we have been called. All things will one day be brought together under the lordship of Christ. And he will reign and rule over a newly created world inhabited with holy, blameless people. But that holiness is not something that we're to wait on. It's something that we're to work for. And Paul tells, tells us how to do that. 
And he begins next with a negative picture of what that looks like, okay? And, and I just, as I've been meditating on this passage and just thinking about it, it helps me so much because I want us to think about this world and why it is the way it is. And I think this passage helps us see that, all right? It shows us why the world is the way it is and why we cannot, must not be conformed to it. So look at what Paul says. I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, there's a direct connection between verse 17 here and verse 1. This walk that we are called to, this imperative that God gives us here, following all those indicatives, all those truths that came in chapters 1 through 3. And here Paul is not just making a helpful suggestion. Notice what he says. In the Lord, he says, what Paul is saying in that, what I believe is being communicated in that, is that this is God's word. The Lord is speaking to us here about this urgent issue. In the Lord, he says, I testify. The word testify there is where we get the word martyr. All right. There's a weightiness to this. There's an urgency to this. And it is from God. And so Paul is saying, this is not who you now are in Christ. And so, so we see the clear distinctives of, of who we no longer are if we are in Christ. It's, it's a description of what we saw in chapter 2, where we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he says. Where we were following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now working the sons of disobedience. And if he, and in case any of us would feel like he's leaving anybody out, he says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we, you understand, right, that we're not talking about walk here as, as a walk around Huck Sandsbury. It's not walking a mile or your 10,000 steps. Walk is life. Our walk is our life. And we are either living in Christ, like Christ, or Paul says there's an old way of living, an old way of walking, and it was that life outside of Christ. And that's what we're being contrasted here today. That's what he's making the difference of. He says at one point in time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, no hope, without God. But now you are no longer strangers or aliens, and you are members of the household of God. So he is directing this. He uses the phrase Gentiles. But he uses that in the sense of those who are outside of that covenant community. All right? Remember, that's the two distinctives in the, in the scriptures about humanity. We are either in Christ or outside of Christ. And those outside of that covenant community are referred to as pagans or Gentiles. And so there he's not talking about a racial distinction. He's talking about a spiritual distinction. And that's, the, that's who's being addressed here. And he said, even those of you who used to be considered Gentiles, now you are a part of God's covenant community, right? We are now a part of his family. We're no longer strangers and aliens, members of the household of God. But he said, I want you to remember what it used to be like. I want you to be able to judge and discern these differences. And the first characteristic he gives is that of futile minds and darkened understanding. He says, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. Your translation might say the vanity of their minds. The idea is emptiness, futility, nothing in there. 
It's the word that Isaiah uses in the Old Testament to describe idols and those who worship them and make them. No gods, right? They are no gods. And those who worship them are as empty and nothing as they are. It's the word that Solomon uses uh, 27, 28, maybe 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes to describe life under the sun, life that's lived simply on a horizontal level. It's empty, it's meaningless, it's futile, Solomon says. And so here the, desire, the, the description is of a mind that's empty of anything that's eternally significant. There's nothing in there that has real eternal significance. There's no real goal being accomplished. There's no real meaningful or lasting result that comes from this, this futile, empty mind. And this futile, empty mind is characterized, second, by understanding that it's dark. And that's pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, if you're in the dark, you just don't see clearly. So this darkened understanding has no ability to reason no ability to distinguish between and discern between what is right and wrong and what is really true and what is really a lie. A darkened mind, this darkened understanding, is just unable to see and understand what is going on around them. He describes it, secondly, as a hardened heart. And not just a hardened heart, but a hardened heart that has led to, well, look at what it says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So this idea that there is a hardness of the heart that has led to ignorance and isolation, this alienation that he talked about earlier, okay, where we're alienated from God, well, that is due to the hardness of the heart. That's due to, well, wait a minute, what is it due to? Is it due to inherent sin and the fact that we are depraved? Or is it due to the decisions that we make? Yeah, it's both, I think. But I think in this particular passage, I think the text clarifies that what has been brought on in the life of this unbeliever, these, these pagans, if you will, has been brought on by their hardening of their own hearts against the truth of God. We see that juxtaposition throughout the Old Testament. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see this going on back and forth. So here, there's a hardening of the heart that has led to ignorance and, and, and has led to an alienation. This ignorance that is in them, it says. So... Yeah, it's an inherent flaw, but it is in them because that's the decision that they're making. That's the decision that we made when we were outside of Christ. Remember how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1? His invisible attributes, talking about God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that God's general revelation, his natural revelation made in, each, made in the creation, it is not enough to save, but it is enough to condemn. Because the character of God, the righteousness of God, the glory of God is seen in what he has made. But instead of honoring God, Paul says, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, foolish in their hearts as where they were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. So this, this dark, this hard heart just continues down this downward spiral 
of alienation and darkness. He then describes it as a callousness. They have become callous. Right? Now, now those of you who know me will know that I'm a very tender guy, right? No. I, I am from the ankle down anyway. Here's what I mean. My grandchildren, they beat all I've ever seen. They can run just, just flat out in a sprint across the grass in the yard and hit the gravel driveway and never slow down. They don't wince. They don't do this, you know, like, like I do when I walk out barefoot across the gravel. Maybe I used to be that way. I don't know. But Jack and Larkin's feet are like the heart of that one who is outside of Christ. It is calloused, it is insensitive, it is hard, it is unresponsive to spiritual things. There's just nothing there. There's no, there's no slow down and there's no remorse because of what's being done. And so what happens is, is, is in the unbelieving heart, in this pagan heart, there's this repetition of wrong choices that leads to more hardness, that leads to more repetition, that leads to more hardness. And, and forget about slowing down in the sin process. It just pursues it more and more and more with a reckless abandon because there's no feeling. Right? There's, there's a hard heart like this, a calloused heart, cannot distinguish between good and evil. And then is unresponsive. When the results of that, the consequences of that, come upon their life. It's just dull. And then he says, <laughs> the hits just keep coming. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There is a total lack of moral restraint. Which leads to just an obsession with sex and sexuality. And it's just an obsession that just continues. There's just a total perversion of God's ways and God's purposes and God's intentions. Does any of this sound familiar? Huh? Does it, make, does it, does, does it help us start to maybe see why some of these things that are going on around us that we go, what are people thinking well, they're not, because they can't. Not this way. Not this way. There are hardened, calloused hearts that have no remorse over sin, no tears of brokenness, no genuine repentance. And not only that, there's just an addictive nature to it, okay? A continual lusting for more and more and more. And the more and more we want it, the more and more it takes to satisfy, which cannot ever really satisfy. And it gets stronger and stronger and weirder and weirder. And we wonder, where can it end? And there is no limit. Right? I mean, we can look back ten years and we just can't imagine. What is it that's happened that's gotten us here? I recently read a book, and I'm reading another book by Carl Truman. He, he wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in that book, I heard an interview with him, and he makes this statement. He said, 
you know, 20 or 30 years ago, if a man went to a doctor and said, I have a woman living inside of me, or if a woman went to a doctor and said, I, I'm really a man inside of a woman's body, he would have said, that doctor would have said back then, you have a psychological issue. You, ha- you have this psychological issue. But now, well, you have a biological issue. Your body is not conforming to your desires. What, what got us to that place where our very identity of ourselves is wrapped up in whatever cultural, personal, sexual desire is in our hearts? Well, Paul tells us what's happened here. And the three words he uses to describe this process are sensuality, impurity, and greed. He says they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That sensuality is just what it sounds like. It's sexual, sensual excess. Licentiousness is the word that's translated, and we don't ever hear that anymore. It's not a word that's used in our vocabulary. It's the total absence of restraint, total absence of decency as God would define it. Sensuality. Impurity. Well, that's just what it is. It's impure. It's moral uncleanliness, indecency. And then greed, which says, I will do whatever, take whatever, run over whoever I must to accomplish this end. That's So there's this law at work in this. We become seared, we become hardened, we need more and more, we need weirder and weirder. We need more self-affirmation or cultural affirmation to know who we are and to feel good about who we are. And it goes right back to where C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters is talking about this older demon training a younger demon. And here's, here's their recipe for success. Here's what, here's what screw tape says to his young protege. The recipe is this. Ever-increasing slavery to ever-decreasing pleasure. That's the recipe for success. Ever-increasing slavery to ever-decreasing pleasure. That's what happens more and more when we're enslaved. There's more and more chains, more and more pain, more and more turmoil, less and less joy and pleasure. And we don't even know it when we're in this dull, darkened place. That's not who you are, church. That's not who we are. Now, our natural... And and we will learn through the rest of Ephesians how we respond to this around us. So, one of those is we should see it for what it is, which is spiritual darkness. And we should understand that there's one answer to that spiritual darkness, and that's the light and life that's found in Christ. All right? It cannot be legislated. It cannot be politicized. It will not be brought about through some national political machinations. It's a spiritual issue. And the responsibility of promoting that spiritual answer is the church. It's us. Okay? That's our message. That's our hope for this fallen, dark, crazy world we live in. We need to keep our focus on that. So the next step, what happens in this process is that as we live countercultural, walk counterculturally, proclaim a countercultural message, 
I believe that, and I don't know how long it might take, sooner or later the absurdity of this, in some ways it will be made clear. That interview I was listening to, Carl Truman said, you know, what I really believe is going to happen in 20 or 30 years is, is some of these young people whose own hearts lied to them, whose own parents reinforced that lie, whose doctors and others reinforced that lie and allowed them to go down this journey of trying to be something other than what God made them to be, sooner or later they're going to wake up to the reality of that and they're going to sue somebody's pants off. And because of the culture that we live in, it's only when that legal machine starts rolling that entertainment and corporations and things like that are going to recognize, you know, maybe that wasn't the best idea we ever had. But in the meantime, in the meantime, church, listen to what the text says. But you, but you, and that's not in most of our English translations, but that's the way it is in the Greek. But you did not thusly learn Christ is, is what Paul says there. There's a clean break. So the text says, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. And as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put off the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But you, Paul says, but you, the spirit of God says, but you, God says to us, this is not who you are or who you've learned. It's a totally different understanding of truth. I get that from that first part of that phrase. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. The way you learned Christ here is a word that talks about relational knowledge, not just head knowledge. And there's no, there's no preposition there. There's no article in that. It's, this is how you learned Christ. So it's not really accurate to say that this is what you learned about Jesus. This is what you learned in Jesus. All right? This is, this is who he is. And as you learn him and walk with him, That impacts the way you live. You walk differently from those who don't know Jesus. And there's no preposition in they heard Christ, okay? The text says this is, this is how you heard about Him. That's, I don't don't really like that because that about is not actually as accurate as I think it could be. You heard Christ. It wasn't just a hearing about Him. You heard Christ. He is the subject that's being taught in this classroom. So they are taught in Christ. That's where we learn. And they're hearing about Christ, which is the subject of it. And the same is true for the truth. Literally says the truth in Christ. Truth in Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Isn't that what he said? So that's what he is. So they've heard Jesus. They've heard from Jesus. He's the subject. He's the teacher. He's the classroom. It's all about Christ. F.F. Bruce says Christ himself is the Christian's teacher. Even if the teaching is given through the lips of his followers. To receive the teaching of the, in the truest sense is to hear from him. So when this kind of message, when this word is being taught in Sunday school or proclaimed from the pulpit. F.F. Bruce says, and I think the text backs it up. It's like Jesus is walking up and down the aisles whispering this into your soul. 
And, and praise God, he's just chosen to use the foolishness of a voice like mine for him to speak into your heart. This is who you are. This is what I've bought and paid for with my blood for you. Be that. Do this. There's three grammatical phrases. There's three phrases that just picture for us what this life is that we have in Christ. This truth that is Jesus. This life that is Jesus. This classroom, this learning of Jesus. And it's not this darkness and hardness and deadness and recklessness that we've seen before. It is tenderness. It is light. It is life. It is a progression up, not a downward spiral. The first one of those is put off. The next one is be renewed. And the third one is put on. And if you want to think about going into your closet, that's fine. That's, that's the picture. Just taking off the old rags and putting on the new. And we'll see that again and again in Ephesians. We'll see that Paul uses that same picture for us in Colossians. It is this picture of putting off and putting on. The old is gone and the new has come, right? Second Corinthians 5. But here's the deal. Although there is a positional reality of who we are in Christ, there is a practical ongoing battle to see this carried out in the life of a believer. All right? What Jesus bought and paid for and conquered, we fight against. For it kills us. Take off the old. That's not who you are now. And so there's this need to just repeatedly denounce, repeatedly put off. These old garments, this old way of life. And in the scripture and our experience shows us that this is not a one-time deal. Right? There is nothing magic about that water up there. It comes from the city of Roxburgh. It comes out of a tap. We heat it and you get wet in it. Now it pictures something eternally significant. But there's nothing magic in that water. And you get up out of that water and you walk through the power of the Holy Spirit and through hard, hard effort empowered by that Spirit, through the power that raised Jesus from the grave, you fight a battle against sin or sin will kick your tail and kill you. That's just the way it works. Kent Hughes says, the problem is the old garments are so comfortable and natural. And not only that, many of us have worn them so long that they just naturally drape over us and we scarcely know that we're wearing them until the Holy Spirit reproves us. So my battle against lust is a constant battle. It's not just something that happened when I was going through puberty. My battle against self and selfishness and greed doesn't change regardless of the income. Our desire to have our way, we learn it when we don't get our bottle and we practice it throughout our lives and it continues until the last day we draw breath. We have to fight it. So we put off this old man and then we are renewed. Constant renewal is the idea there. It's a new way of thinking. And so we can't effectively put on new clothing unless we're thinking. Now, here's the deal. The world is going to try to tell us what that wardrobe ought to look like. That's what the fashion industry is built upon. Right? And that changes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that changes 
well, I don't know. I mean, you can subscribe to magazines and websites and blogs to try to keep up with fashion. But it changes constantly. And that's true with mores and morals and behaviors and expectations of the world. This is the echo of Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and discern what is the will of God, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. You know what God's will is for your life today? I can tell you with 100% certainty what God's will for your life is today. It is holiness. Don't worry about your career. Don't worry about all who you're going to marry. Focus on what you know right now, and God will direct you in those next steps that will come. God calls us to holiness. A constant renewal. We do this through, through time in the Word, through hearing from Jesus, through conversation with Him, through prayer. The Word gives us God's thoughts, God's intentions. Prayerful meditation upon that changes our minds. We have the mind of Christ. And then finally it says, put on. This is who we are now, so we're consistently putting on these Christ-like characteristics. And Paul's going to lay those out for us as we go through the rest of this chapter. Our old nature, that old sinful person, it's a struggle, it's a battle. But here's, here's a historical, theological way to see these things, I think, and I think it's accurate. Historical, theological understanding of this says, first off, in our old nature... We are not able not to sin. Do you hear that? In our old nature, outside of Christ, we are not able not to sin. But secondly, as new creatures in Christ, justified by Christ, inhabited by Christ, and dwelt by Him, we are able not to sin. I keep going back to Jason's point that he made several weeks ago. Our model for humanity is not our fallenness. It is Christ's holiness and His perfection. That's what it is to be a real human. So secondly, we, we are able not to sin because we are new creatures in Christ. But thirdly, that does not mean that we will live perfectly. It does not mean that we are unable to sin because we still can. And because of that, the very presence of Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the grave in us through the power of his Holy Spirit gives us the power to fight these temptations. That's what it means to take off, be renewed, and put on. Martin Luther said we are simultaneously justified and sinful. We're simultaneously justified, that's who we are in Christ, and sinful. So we have to battle that. And that sin is so corrosive, it's so dangerous, it's so damaging. This is why Paul, I think, grows to such great lengths in this passage to warn us about it. Let me give you some applications as we wrap up. Listen to me very carefully. If you are not in Christ today, you have no life. Yeah, you're breathing. Your heart's beating. Blood is flowing through your veins. But the scriptural truth is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead, darkened in your soul, and unable to understand, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, spiritual truth. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you'll never get it. But in Christ, you get it all. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men, John says in John chapter 1, verse 4. And Jesus came that you could have that life and have it abundantly. He came to free you enlighten your darkened heart and give you life. I invite you today to confess. Trust in Jesus. 
Turn from your sin and come to Him. When we finish this service in just a minute, I'll be down here. Come and talk to me or come to me after the service and let me talk with you about that. Secondly, for the Christian, this text is addressed to us. This is not to them out there somewhere. Okay? This is addressed to us. And it is a real issue. It's a real battle. And one of the best ways I think I can illustrate the, 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 this, just the danger of it is, is an illustration that I read this week and then I followed up with a little research of my own. Some of you are going to be very familiar with the USS Indianapolis. In July the 30th of 1945, it had just delivered a load of enriched uranium that would be used to bring the war to an end. They were on their way back home from the Pacific and a torpedo from a Japanese submarine ended that journey. In the first three minutes after that attack, 300 men died. More than 900 went into the water. Four days and five nights later, 316 came out. Almost 600 perished in that, that time in the water. Some of them were attacked and killed by sharks. Some of them were attacked and killed by their own decisions. Listen to what I mean. The chief medical officer was Captain Lewis Haynes. He was one of the survivors, and he reported on what happened. He said, when the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear water, you were so thirsty you could not believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. And the real young guys, you take away their hope, you take away their water, you take away their food, and they would drink the salt water, and then they would go fast. I remember striking men, hitting them who were drinking salt water, trying to stop them. They would get dehydrated, and then they'd get maniacal. There were mass hallucinations, he says. It's amazing how everyone would see the same thing. One man would see something, and everyone else would see it. Even I fought off those hallucinations, he said. But something always brought me back. Sin can be so numbing, so enticing. In our culture, it can seem so clear. One sip won't hurt. One, one drink won't kill me. And slowly, we get another and another and another, and it's more dry, it's more dry, it's more dry. And then we begin to see things not through the eyes of faith, but through the eyes of flesh, through the eyes of the world. And the reason that sin cannot satisfy is the same reason salt water cannot satisfy. We were made for the Scripture's living water. We were made for Jesus, for the life and the truth that is in Him. So church, we must not just shake our heads at this crazy world. We must understand the danger that it presents to us. And that our answer is in Christ. And Christ alone Nothing and no one else. That's our answer. This is just not an option for us. He saved us and shed his blood for this purpose. And then finally, as a church, okay, so as, as an unbeliever, come to Jesus. He's your only life. As, as an individual, holiness is what we've been called to. It's not an option. Within your family, let me just ask you this question. Who's directing the direction of your family? 
What stories are you hearing? What values are you listening to? What identity is captivating the heart of your family? And I say this specifically thinking about something that's coming up in two, three weeks. Westwood and Theresa and East Rock Church are are sponsoring a one-night parent conference where we're going to talk about what it means to be established and grounded in the gospel in the midst of this crazy, sexualized culture that we live in. We're going to talk about that. And one of the things we're going to talk about that, that night, we're going to share dinner, and some of us as pastors are going to have a panel discussion, question and answer time. with every, It's free. I encourage you to come. So we're going to be talking about these stories that we hear. All right? And here's the only reason I mention this. And I'll, I know it's going to take me a second, but I want you to hear what I'm saying here. There was an article in the L.A. Times a few weeks ago. It was an interview with um, the, the chief executive officer for Disney Corporation. Now, you know what's been going on in Florida with the legislation about the, the schools and what can and cannot be taught, and, I, and I'm, I'm all behind that. I think it's excellent to do that. What was going on within the culture at Disney was, you know, the LGBTQ employees and leaders within the culture of Disney were just really torn out of the frame because the company was not being as loud and proud as they felt they should be in speaking into political issues. They wanted Disney involved in the politics. And the CEO of Disney said this in a meeting and later said this in an in a interview. Um, according to the L.A. Times, the CEO, and I give him credit, this is, this is smart. This is smart marketing. Coming from a marketer, this is on point. He said, we will be more effective in creating social change through our movies and TV shows. He said, and I quote, these and all of our diverse stories are our corporate statements and they are more powerful than any tweet or lobbying effort. He goes on and says, I firmly believe that our ability to tell stories and have them received with open eyes, open ears and open hearts would be diminished if our company were to become a political football in any debate. He gets it. Disney's desire as in every other secular corporation, is to set the story, direction, temperature, and goals, and character of your family. So, parents, you have an obligation to guard your own hearts and the heart of your children. And then finally, and I'll wrap up with this, I just read a little book by... Uh, Kevin DeYoung picked it up last week at the conference I was at. A little tiny, read the thing in 30 minutes about how we're going to impact our young people, how we're going to influence our young people in the ways of the gospel. And here's what he says, church. He says, go big or go home. Go big or go home. We must be showing the world the bigness, the glory, and the beauty of Christ. And the best way to present that to the world is in the holy character of Christ. Go big, church. Go holy. Or stay at home. The world needs to see Jesus. Needs to see Him for who He is. And that's our calling. Let's pray. Lord, You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of Your glory. One day it will be immersed in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we're living in a fallen, dark, 
crazy world. And God, you have called us as your redeemed, enlightened, spirit-filled gospel people to present the truth, to live it out, and to do it in a way that, Lord, shows off Jesus. God, I pray you'll help us do that. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.